The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Tonight is our last class, week seven of this seven-week class on compassion and loving kindness. And I believe uh, the sign-up for the summer class is that up online. So you can go ahead and register for the class, The Hindrances, which begins, I think, at the very end of June. I think that also might be seven weeks. And uh, I'll send out to people on the list uh, some books. There's a book by Gil Fransdahl that some of you might want to get on The Hindrances, and also one by um, Ajahn Tirodamo. Um, so we have some really great books besides some wonderful articles um, but in case people want to do a little reading ahead of time. And I'll also announce right now, as long as I'm mentioning the schedule, that, uh, of course, we'll have our June community practice intensive beginning a week later than usual. So I forget the exact date, but it's around the 10th of June, that Monday. And um, goes for two and a half weeks. So think if you want to join some community members to increase your practice for that period of time, Um, it's really a a nice way to complement daily sitting practice and maybe periodic retreat practice by increasing the uh, intensity of your formal practice in the context of your daily life and other responsibilities that you have. So I thought for this last class that we'd look together at um, this experience of boundlessness, of or the immeasurable quality. And remember, uh, in the tradition, those of you who've been reading uh, Venerable Analio's book, Compassion and and Emptiness in Early uh, Buddhist Meditation, he mentions how in the early discourses that the four Brahma-Viharas of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity map on or sometimes used synonymously with the four jhanas, which is interesting. And, uh, but one, you, you can get that sense with these qualities. They have a resonant uh, aspect to them, meaning it's a natural landing or abiding place for the mind when a sense, the sense of friendliness, the sense of compassion, the sense of appreciative joy, or equanimity, when that's present in the mind, it's in the nature of the mind to abide there. There's a certain way the mind lands and abides or is uh, held in that particular quality of those four aspects of love. And the point in the guided meditation tonight is to really try to at least emphasize that when there's a a more mature sense of love, compassion, joy, equanimity, it has a space-like quality. In a way, we could say its quality is more that space of the absence of ill will. Not what's there, but what's not there. So I thought I'd take a little time before launching into uh, some teachings that might for some of you at least, seem a little out there, um, or, I don't know, 
maybe not out there, but not that helpful. Um, just to have people report their own, from tonight, but also your home practice, like how those words that are used in the tradition, like the immeasurable quality, the boundless quality, the expansive quality in reference to love, what does that feel look like? How do you experience that in your sits, in your daily life? The space-like quality or emptiness too, right? The mind is empty of divisions or empty of separation, empty of feeling alienated, empty of ill will, empty of fear. So what's that like? So let's just take a few moments, maybe hear from five people, if there are that many people who want to share or even ask an initial question. Um, I'll try to save time at the end for some questions as well. But just some thoughts about your experience in meditation and the experience of boundlessness. Anything come to mind? Not to put anybody on the spot. (laughs) Yeah, Ben. In my sitting, is it on? I think it's on. Okay. In my sitting practice, the the sensation of boundlessness often feels like I'm falling into a body of water, and it feels very supportive and and self sustaining. So there, you know, oftentimes in a sit, um, I'll feel physical pain or mental pain or you know some sort of emotional pain and there will be a moment um when i fall out of that and it and it feels very very comforting and it's it reminds me of times in my daily life where i'll be thinking of a a problem or some frustration that i'm having usually with somebody else either with you know my family or my friends or at work and there there's usually a sense in a similar way where i i just it's like I, I fall away from that, the hardness of the the disagreement or the conflict, and it and, and the boundlessness feels just very um, infinite in terms of that I could stay there for a long time if only I could hold it, and also that it's um, it feels when there's a conflict or when there's pain it feels very very much like I'm in some sort of room or it's, you know, I can see the, the, the boundaries of where I am. But you know, when I'm, when I fall out of that, it feel it feels very infinite in, in a very f- almost physical sense, which is kind of odd to say. Yeah. yeah. That's helpful, Ben. Thanks. Yeah. So the, how we verbalize it, of course, will be different, but more than the words people speak, just kind of let it be almost like they're painting a picture or giving us a flavor Right? And there's this thing in research, I'm sure some of you know, of triangulation. We hear different voices talk about it, and we get it, it will activate our own understanding. And, that, and one more thing that just for whatever reason came to mind when Ben was talking is it's not something we create. We don't, because that's what it seems like we're sort of revving up the experience of love, you know, we're using the phrase, using the image maybe using the heart center as a location for the attention. We're kind of like, you know, starting this thing up, getting it and giving it some momentum. But it's, when it is strong and you you feel like you have a pretty 
clear sense of it, you can even ask yourself, am I creating this? Am I doing this? Or is just is this state of mind, quality of mind, attitude of mind, is just is this just the way it is? So that can help because that really shifts how our confidence can support it. Like if there's a sense of that that space always available, we can't necessarily access it because of the seductiveness of our dramas, but there's a deepening confidence that it's there. Thanks again, Ben. Other, someone else? Yeah, Ryan, please. Um, when you ask that question, you know, what that experience is like, I think one of the, the experience of, of boundlessness, one word that came to mind was receiving this profound receiving quality, like everything that the mind is knowing or detecting is coming towards it. So there's a really strong directional sense, like the mind doesn't have to do anything to know anything it's on the receiving end of, of everything. And there's a kind of, I guess the word is sort of an equanimous quality to whatever it's knowing so that it's aware of the, the differences or the distinctions between what it's known, what it's knowing, but it's not so concerned with the differences between them. It's just aware that I guess it's, knowing yeah some sometimes some of the ways they talk about what i think you were talking about ryan is this you know the reality of differentiation the the mind that discriminates the mind that sees the different objects it's not like that mind goes away but the relevance of distinctions goes away so you know that that feeling of unification or wholeness or non-division, it doesn't mean that somehow the mind no longer comprehends difference. It's, it's just less relevant or not relevant because what's relevant is that everything is included in the space of you know what we are, at least in this class, calling love. But we don't want to get confused by the word because it can seem like somebody who's loving and so feel free to use a different word or no word. Who's next? Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, for me it was interesting. Um, I noticed the sense of self really diminishing and almost dissolving in the space. Um, conceit uh, is... Uh, Maybe a little closer. Yep, sorry. Um, dissolves and then if then you can I can almost it almost passes through and you can sort of see and try and gra- if it, you try and grasp at the experience then the then that sense of kind of being the open the expansiveness sort of collapses and almost goes away so there's this very sort of it's it's hard to describe it's almost like um like a, more like a field or a wave of expansion yeah. and then the sense of cons- that sort of that sense of I am 
it's hard to describe just fades yeah poets talk about this a lot right I, I was thinking today earlier of this line from Rumi's poem I, I couldn't find the poem I looked online I have it written down somewhere but I don't know where uh, but one of the lines in this poem by Rumi is as it's translated at least from lover to love and different poets talk about the same thing right there's a whole type of poetry and and really a religious spiritual practice devotional practice of this merging with the beloved with god or whatever that might be you know where we might start at sort of fixated on being the lover or you know devoted to the the object of our love but at some point it's just love right the sense of somebody who loves or somebody who's so appreciative of god's love goes away and there's just love and that's really the meditative experience as you described is the we might initially use a very dualistic thing like i love my cat at home and i think about my cat and think about how much how much joy there is in taking care of my cat or whatever your child your whatever the story that we bring to mind but if we're given good instruction if we practice well that the duality of the story falls away and love is what remains the the experience is what we're interested in in that experience the sense of self in any particular form isn't relevant without anybody trying to get rid of that sense of self it just like you say it just evaporates or fades away or disappears it becomes irrelevant because something has become relevant for my sit for my sits and um in my day-to-day life, I just found this experience of boundlessness to be really comforting. And also, I just found that it makes everything so much easier <laughs> when when you can hold it. Um, I just find that I, something I get, I just get really worked up about injustices in the world. And um, I can just see how much reactivity I have around that and the tendency towards anger even frustration ill will and when i get in those experiences or even come to sit and those experiences are coming up in my head and those frustrations are coming up in my head if i can just get that little bit of space and let go of ill will it's just like such a relief and a release um, and I, yeah, I just really resonate with other people, um, what, what we've been discussing just about, um, having that perspective to kind of see things from outside yourself or yeah, the sense of selflessness. Um, it's like, it comes in snippets or just like really quick flashes kind of, or just for short periods of time, but just to like catch that that glimmer or that like just that moment of like disconnecting from the frustration um or in the emotional charge any ill will that comes up is like then it's just easy it's so much easier and it's so like it's way more comfortable in my just being in my body and engaging so 
Yeah, that's been my experience. Yeah, little cracks, those little glimpses, then even when the mind, because of the gravitational pull of habit energy to be self-righteous or to be angry or to be whatever, even though the mind gets pulled back in, there's, a, there's more porousness in the oppressive force of our dramas or our anger or dualistic thinking. It's still there, still sort of acting itself out in predictable ways, but it's gradually held lighter in a more light way, more porous way. Because every time we have that little glimmer, the mind, it's like the mind collects one more data point that uh, the framing, that ill will, let's just use ill will as an example, the framing that ill will brings to life, you know, constructs a, a reality. We, the mind understands that that's something that happens, that's something that's constructed, that arises and ceases. It's not the truth. It may be a very persistent appearance, but it's not the truth. And even before we're consciously aware that these insights, this transformation is underfoot, it's underfoot. By the time it kind of rocks our world, the insight, that means we've been collecting that data, that seeing little glimpses for a long time, but not believing it, not sort of really knowing what that, what's going on until there's enough data that the mind can't not know that it isn't what it appears to be. The ill will, the fear that so often structures, you know, sort of the glue of our mental constructions, our self-centered dramas, it's like they're still there, but the, the, the oppressive weight of them, it's not the same. Yeah, thanks, Claire. Maybe time for one more person. Anybody else want to share with the group? Yeah, please, Sandy. For me, it's it's been like, and I'm not sure if it's because I've been like tight for a long time, but it's like the, I can only describe it as that like after a really good cry, that first really deep breath you take and mm-hmm. just kind of that release. And and I don't know if I, yeah, that is just the only way I can describe it. Or like the, um, like the smell of somebody coming in from outside. Like I read, I read <laughs> that line in a book. Great images. Well, no, well, there's, I read that in a book in a book by my favorite author, but it's this mother and her son and she grabs him and she's, she smells him and she says, you smell like outside. And it's that. Yeah. Yeah. There's that distinct smell. And I think we all resonated with that other image of that breath after a good cry. And I think what you're pointing to is, uh, there's a sense of weight and intuiting its release. And I think that's, both of those images point to that, like there was some being bound up by emotional energy, and then the cry releases that. And then at some point, energetically in the body, there's a realization that there was a weight, and it's not there anymore. And it's, it's surprising, right? And I think it's similar to that smell of outside. I mean, as I've experienced, I get it with the cat. You know, when you smell the cat after it's been out all day, 
It smells like outside. Laundry does too. That's been hung on the line, you know, or when you're with your sweetie, you know, and you've been outside and, and you get a hug or something. It's like there's that smell of outside. And, it, and it's different than we didn't realize how oppressive being inside is. But when we smell the outside, it's sort of uh, the fragrance of not being inside, not being in the bounds of our, I mean, these structures, like as nice as they are and as much as we probably don't want to lose them, the fact is they're sort of a reflection of a lot of unhealthy stuff in our mind, you know, fear, like, so I'll build myself a box, you know. Messiness, I'll make the box have right angles <laughs> in a way that nothing out there really in the world does, right? But we can make it really orderly and it, it gets oppressive. Did somebody have their hand up over here? Do you want to? Great, Elizabeth. So I was actually going to say something somewhat similar um, in that the feeling is like right before you cry, like that moment where you realize you can't hold it in anymore. And it's just that like it's all falling away. And I think um, also when I, for me, it's the feeling of holding my one of my daughters. And it's just that that overwhelming feeling of um, just like just reverence. Like I just can't believe this, this thing exists and kind of wanting to hold it, but not wanting to harm it and wanting to just observe it and stand back and be so appreciative of it, but also wanting to grab it at the same time. And it's just that sort of tension between, um, those things I mean the other thing too that kind of comes to mind is like if you find like a a bird that's been hurt or like a small baby animal and you want to pick it up but you don't want to hurt it more and so you're kind of trying to hold it in your hand and there's just this feeling of like of awe and adoration for this thing that's so fragile and beautiful Um, you want to grasp it but you also just want to kind of stand back and there's just this feeling of, um, I guess, of awe and adoration that kind of comes over you. Yeah, 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 that's helpful. And I bet a lot of you have had a related experience to some of what you were just talking about, where in a set or just in daily life, and there is more of that movement, that expansive movement of joy and rapture, which is often related to the practices of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes. And it's interesting because with that expansive movement of joy, something opening up, there can be something that arises to meet that in a fear, like, oh, this is too much. I don't trust this. And it can, it's an, it can be an interesting place, and it can even feel like something's going to break, and something actually does break. Um, there's a story Jack Cornfield tells of um, a doctor who was on a retreat with him, and he was having really severe uh, pain in his heart. He thought he was having a heart attack, and he thought he would tell Jack before he went off 
to the hospital and you know he had maybe some kind of intuition that I'm not really sure but it sure feels like a heart attack and it was a heart attack but not the kind he thought it was I mean it was just something that wasn't used to moving was moving but there was a lot of habit energy around not trusting things being open and moving and unconfined unrestricted and so you might notice that sometimes uh, like even tonight for example my own practice and this is not uncommon you know when I'm on purpose contemplating that expansive feeling which is generally a go-to place in meditation if it's accessible whether it has the particular flavor of love or the flavor of peace right and always what the more that the mind the heart is invited to abide there the more that anything that uh, for whatever reason is bound up not not able to be included in that open state it really stands out so the places that are being held emotionally physically energetically psychically spiritually whatever they stand out they're really highlighted so it can be an intense place and we're not using that state of openness or expansion or the quality of love there can be just a a noticing the contrast noticing the edge and sort of trusting the nature to loosen things up or to have its effect without you know wanting to do demolition or breakthrough have a breakthrough moment which is you can imagine counterproductive thanks for all the great sharings everyone I do want to share a few things and also save a little time at the end for more sharings and any questions that people might have and I'm sorry if I read this earlier in the course but I I just want to bring it up again in terms of uh, it is this is from a venerable Analio's book page 58 he says the mental experience of boundlessness is by its very nature free from any strain or tension and thereby offers a natural way into deepening mental tranquility moreover the very fact that one is engaging in compassion etc makes it almost inevitable that one will be soft with oneself instead of pushing too hard besides encouraging a soft and allowing attitude towards oneself the mental attitude engendered by the brahma viharas will also be of considerable assistance assistance when one has to face external disturbances or even internal disturbances he goes on writing instead of resulting in the frustrating experience of wavering between being concentrated on the chosen object of meditation and having lost this object due to external sounds or other disturbances meditation can continue smoothly this can be achieved by making the sound or or disturbance part of the practice compassion informs one's attitude towards the disturbance or those responsible for it in this way problems can become the path even though the degree of mental tranquility will not be as profound as it would be 
would have been without the disturbance, the actual practice continues seamlessly. In this way, the main concern of one's practice would not be the reaching of a particular mark in concentrative depth, but the maintenance of the boundless radiation of the Brahma-viharas when facing any disturbance. Any disturbance, including any form of mental distraction, thus simply becomes food for the practice. And then this is the place, now I'm on page 59, where he makes that point about the similarities and the overlap in terms of how the Buddha spoke between the four Brahma-viharas and the jhanas, these deep states of meditative absorption. And, uh, and he really, in that quote, he, he really points to what I, the point I was making before, that when there is some degree of opening and the mind, the heart abiding more fully, trusting more fully this space that's empty of ill will, right? Really trusting the unboundedness of that space. And then that, that intention to abide, to relax there, to trust it, to appreciate it, is then in conflict with some unfinished business. You know, like, she did this to me. I mean, but it may not even be a formed problem in your life, but just it feels like something's being held or a place that's energetically tight, right? So then this gives us our instruction. So instead of, you know, trying to break through, it's really that line from Joko Beck, a bigger container, like realizing that this space, this boundless space, is already including that. It's not like a competition between the boundlessness in the knot, in the hardness, but that the hardness already is included in the space. So it's a, it's a kind of a special move that's really a, a confidence move, a confidence in the nature of the mind or in the nature of goodness. That it isn't something we constructed that's in competition with other things that have been constructed or set in motion, and now it's a question of who's bigger. It's more the move that sort of allows for the continued expansion is realizing that one is essential. One is, in a sense, the nature of the mind or is reflective of the nature of the mind. And the other thing is a construction that arose in the nature of the mind, in the space of the mind. And so it can be included. And you see how that has everything to do with love. I mean, that's what love is. It's what can show up. It's what knows how to, you know, in a practical, ordinary sense, what knows how to show up to whatever the situation is in our life. That's why there are these four flavors, because joy is what we use to show up when something beautiful is going on. And compassion is what we use to get close, to be intimate when there's some suffering. And equanimity when it's ambiguous, right? And it's all... They all have the flavor of friendliness, gentleness, inclusivity. And this is, you know, we have our resistance because of the pain that we feel and the unpleasantness of the pain that we feel, emotional pain, psychic pain. We have doubts that it's almost like 
Uh, maybe it's related to cognitive dissonance because in ways we're so invested in our suffering and being a suffering being. Remember the line from Buddha Gosa on the path of purification, the Vasudhimaga, this ancient text, where he says, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. So we have, you know, we've spent so many moments investing, identifying with suffering, that it's this experience, you know, of a boundless state, moments of that, glimpses of that. It might be hard for us to trust it. There's a line, there's a great uh, Jungian person, Robert Johnson. He has a, I think, a short but a wonderful book on the shadow how it plays out in spiritual life that I read a while back, but I really found it useful because there's always shadow. There's shadow in how we practice here. It's not like Buddhism is immune to shadows. And uh, I'm not sure if this is from that book, but he writes here, this is, I think, from Jack Kornfield's book. He has a quote from Robert Johnson. Curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously then they hide their dark sides. It is more disrupting to find that you have a profound nobility of character than to find out that you are a bum. So I think in, in maybe more spiritual terms, you know, or in the sort of underlying nature of the mind, because we have so much investment in so much of our early practice, is just seeing the defilements, seeing the hardness, seeing the negativity, that uh, it's really interesting to experience those expanded states. I remember uh, once when I I accessed a sort of a more profound state of quiet, uh, but a really beautiful expanded state, I just cried. And it was exactly that. It was like uh, I couldn't, it was like, even though I knew a lot about the practice at that point, but it was, uh, it, it there's so much emotional therapeutic healing in that moment to see something that is just inherent in the nature of the mind. It so contradicted all of those, all of that ancient programming that I'm not good enough, you know, trying to be a good meditator to sort of prove myself to myself and to others or, you know, trying to be funny or whatever, all those things that we try to be. And to, you know, experience something that is so indisputably wholesome and good, it really interrupts. It's a profound challenge to any sense of shame or not being good enough. So we want to be on the lookout of pushback as your practice in the Brahma Viharas, the loving kindness practices, as it naturally as they naturally develop and you touch and you trust, then there's going to be something that has a problem with that, right? Like all of our confidence in not being good enough. Or or even more like uh, thinking we have a lot to a lot of work to do. Right? Even that thought, because it's not quite right. I mean, on a certain level, there may be a lot of work to do. 
But that doesn't dis, that in no way dismisses or denies the underlying nature of love or the under, uh, underlying open, empty nature of the mind itself, empty of the defilements. Some of you know um, Nargajuna. He's a well-known character in the Buddhist tradition several <clears throat> hundred years after the time of the Buddha. Um, and actually, a lot of different traditions claim him. Often he's thought of as a real one of the real Mahayana Buddhist saints, but you know when you read his writings, it's uh, it's really in line with how the Buddha taught. And so now there's more recently, you know, a reclaiming by the Theravada tradition of Nagarjuna. Let's see if I can find it. And this is, uh, I think, a really good book written by Stephen Batchelor um, called "Here It Is." Verses from the Center. And it's just his translations and commentary on some of Nargajuna's writing. I can't remember right now what century, maybe like second century, somewhere in there, CE. So, you know, six to eight, six to nine hundred years after the time of the Buddha. The insp- so this is uh, Stephen Batchelor writing, and then he'll quote some of Nagarjuna's uh, verses. The inspiration of the sublime selflessness of the natural world enables one to see the pettiness of one's self-centered fantasies. Yet at the heart of this spacious stillness, one discovers that one is not alone, but intimately interwoven into a seamless web of sentient life which one compares to a vast organism. And so these are some verses. Just as these arms and legs are seen as limbs of a body, why, why are embodied creatures not seen as limbs of life? And this is just part of that, you know, part of the effect of developing Brahma-Viharas and other expanded states is the mind begins to sense that the different boundaries that we're invested in are constructions. And I remember this, this was like a really sort of lightning and thunder experience of rapture once when I was just, I was reading a book and it was, it was kind of this quirky book that evidently, I mean, I don't know what to think about people who say they're channeling somebody, but I keep an open mind because I don't know. So this was a person who was channeling somebody, and this person was telling this person, or this uh, supposed being was telling this person about the sort of structure of the universe. And what this uh, disembodied being was saying was that this, like, we think of my body as being, you know, here, this is me, and we make a big deal of like where my skin is and what's inside and what's outside of that. But he just sort of laid out the whole thing as just different levels of organization as you might have in a big corporation. You know, you've got one office here with three people, and then that head of that office reports. And so this is how it goes, you know, like on a molecular level, reporting to maybe a collection of molecules and maybe reporting eventually to the cellular level, to the organ level, 
to the maybe whole body level, to the clan level, to the you know ethnic level or species level at some point, to Gaia, you know, the earth level, to the solar bureaucrat, you know, in charge of the solar system, galactic, and then on and on like that. So I was just reading this and just contemplating this idea, you know, that just the idea that the frames that my mind uses unconsciously, used unconsciously, and it's just opened up. And it was like, explosions. I mean, I, I thought, I didn't know what was happening. There was just like a lot of energy moving. And it's just rapture. It's just because the idea, like people mentioned here, we don't realize how much oppressive, uh, how much oppression there is with the frames we just unconsciously live with. And when they get loosened up even a little bit, a lot of energy just starts to move. Like, just a little kink in the idea that this particular framing is just a convention that the mind is in a deep habit with, but it's just a convention. And we could just as easily be imagining ourselves as a sentient cell in some solar being, some Gaia being, some species being, some you know, family being, Right? And sometimes we sort of think with a family mind, and sometimes we think in a mammal way, right? We're just sort of, it's my mammalian, is that how you say it? Programming, right? Or maybe we need to, at least these days, think from a more earth level, Gaia mind, like, okay, how healthy are we? <laughs> what needs to be done here? Let me just read a little bit more here. Just as the hand reaches out to soothe the pain in the foot, why does one not spontaneously respond to the suffering of another in the same way? Shantideva realizes that this, is a, that this is due to a deep visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate self. As long as one is in thrall of this fixation, spontaneous concern for others will tend to be felt only for those who fall within the range of what is mine. And you mentioned, you know, like seeing a little creature. It's relatively easy for us to sort of say that's mine. And it's interesting, like uh, I was doing some research last week before the talk because I wanted to find out a little bit more. Some of you know about this gorilla. Was it uh, Coco? Anybody remember the name? It was famous. Yeah, and they gave this mountain gorilla, so one of the big gorillas, uh, kittens. And, uh, and he had a very seemingly affectionate, loving relationship, interspecies love, really. And then uh, the cat, you know, could get in and out of the cage and I guess got hit by a car and got killed. And the woman who was uh, a friend of this gorilla and also one of the trainers or whatever they called themselves, researchers maybe, told, because uh, this gorilla knew sign language, you know, that the kitten had died and, and then was grieving. First, it didn't grieve at first. Uh, he signaled something like, you know, that's not good, that's not okay. And then later when they left him, they had, uh, they had a camera and a, audio, and a microphone and just wailing, I mean, just in the way that the gorillas wail, um, you know, grieving. 
So it's just interesting, like these these boundaries that we think are there, they're constructions. And, you know, there are reasons we have these constructions because we don't, like I was saying earlier, trust boundarylessness. We don't trust how much energy there would be if we cared about everybody. Like, we may not want to care about Donald Trump. It might be easier for people who have trouble with that president or another politician or some sibling that you had a falling out with 20 years ago or a neighbor who you think is not behaving appropriately. Like we're invested in these divisions and we're afraid. We don't know who we would be. We're so used to the box, the oppressive box that we're in. We don't know who we'd be outside of that. The pain of those outside of this range can then be treated with indifference and even satisfaction. Shantideva refines Nagarjuna's vision by spelling out the effective and ethical implications of emptiness. Emptiness not only eases, so emptiness of self, emptiness of ill will, right? Emptiness not only eases the cognitive restriction of self-centeredness, it generates feelings of empathy. When Shanti Deva dissolved his sense of being a closed cell of self, he did not vanish into an abyss of nothingness. Instead, he rediscovered himself as a cell that formed part of the interdependent multicellular organism of existence itself. He realized that his sense of being Shanti Deva was not grounded in an isolated personal essence hidden deep within himself somewhere, but was created out of this out of his mirrored and unrepeatable relationship with others. I'm going to skip a little. Emptiness is counterintuitive because it contradicts the deepest sense a person has of being me. Yet as Shantideva makes clear, emptiness does not eliminate this me, but transforms it. Contrary to expectation, an empty self self turns out to be a relational self. Right? And I'll just end before opening it up um, this very famous passage from Shantideva's uh, treatise called The Way of the Bodhisattva. And you really get a sense of how alive a person can be when they're not trapped in the constructions of the mind, the sort of conventional self-centered mind. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. And for all who need a servant, may I be their slave. May I be a wishing jewel the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme healing. May I be a tree of miracles and for every being the abundant cow, like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring as the sky itself endures for boundless multitudes of living beings 
may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. So a lot more I can say, but it might be nice for the last 11 minutes or so to just see your responses from some of what I've shared or just any questions that you have or just continuing the discussion of experience of being relatively in a relatively expanded state and in contrast to the you know more regular, ordinary, constricted states. Yeah, Tim, who has the mic? Oh, there it is. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, since starting this class, how about now? You just have a quiet voice, Tim. Since starting the class, I um, I found that uh, my concentration has improved a lot, and it is based on that on the the book by Analio that I read I read before the class started and I kind of saw how these two uh, um, mind states were kind of linked and I find I'm able to control my thoughts a lot more than I used to be and it makes me feel kind of it gives me this kind of like empowered feeling that I don't have to keep going down the same pathways over and over and in my meditation, I've felt very focused, but it also feels like I'm, I'm making efforts to stay focused. And it's effort I want to make because I, I want, I'm working on meditating without thoughts, and seeing how how long I can go without thinking, because that's just that's just where I'm being drawn right now, and. But but today, when you during the guided meditation, it seemed a lot more effortless, and I was just wondering, like, is there any place? What is the place of effort in in the framework that Analio describes? Yeah, I think the effort is, you know, initially there needs to be, let's just say, a personal effort, but only as a counterweight to the force of habit. But once the mind has gone beyond the gravitational pull of habit. So it's, it's tuned in to something that's beyond habit. Habit's still operating, but it's, there's something bigger in the space, right? Then, then the practice is more about trusting that new gravitational pull or, you know, like that, that quality of expansion, keeping it in mind, not forgetting it. You don't need uh, a personal effort to bring the attention back or to name or to notice being caught. But if we don't, so it's always good to check because especially if you're practicing regularly and if you're in a place where you have some momentum, you might not need to make that kind of more gross level effort even though you're right at the beginning of your sitting period. Your mind may be ready to abide. 
And it can be counterproductive when your mind is ready to abide to be efforting in a more normal sense of the word. And that's the thing about effort. Effort is always uh, uh, relative to the way the mind is in that moment. And we are efforting, our way of efforting has to be as nimble or as, as varied as there are states of mind, you know, and there are every, you know, from, from a really gross mind that's completely overwhelmed by negativity to a very refined, expansive mind. The effort is different all the way along that spectrum, right? And so at the most refined state, there's no effort at all. Right? If the effort is, if any effort would be to recognize when neurotic effort arises, you know, and to, and to immediately see that that's not needed. It's not necessary. You can relax. Yeah, thanks, Tim, for bringing that up. Other thoughts? Yeah, hiya. I got Dr. it. Too, too late. <laughs> I'll fight you for it. No. And I'm in an expanded state, so I'm strong. No. Um, a couple of things. I've noticed a lot of uh, like glittering behind my eyes a lot. And um, I, I associate it with um, subtle body awareness while I'm moving through life. Um, and it's very much as though I've been joined by something that's not exactly me uh and uh she's very loving to me and i was using uh Nahan's words which were dear one i'm here for you but it flipped and i started saying dear one i'm here for you and i started to realize how much i loved this awareness um that was moving with me and how much deep affection i had for this lived thing and um and the only other thing i'll say is um i have this client who has pick's disease it's terrible disease i hope no one else gets it um but i like to go in expanded states with him because i can reach him so like the other day he was on his bed and some you have to really get in his face to get him out get him out and i was staring at him and I think we stared at each other without looking away for about 20 minutes. It was more than we do in life. It was more than we do in theater, you know, where we're just ogling the landscape of another being. And we both went, like, his face just started breaking up into other faces, shadows, like when you stare at anything. But I swear we merged or something. And so it was an expanded state where I felt as though I was... Uh, giving him, reaching him with presence. that nothing, You couldn't reach him with language. You can barely reach him with touch. But something happened between us. I don't know. So, so expanded states are actually just the beginning. They're just a tool of something else that uh, we don't, we live in boxes. Th- that's the one thing. I realized after I did this with Stephen that that it's like we are so, we live like this. It's so small how we live. I'm here, you're there. We do this, I do that. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Who wanted this? Thank you, Anne, for her 
manifesto. <laughs> Sounds right. Now the real highest speaks. <laughs> you know, it, it, it seems like this is something I've been, you know, compassion, uh, loving kindness, um, appreciative joy, equanimity. It's, it's like so focused in for a, for a while. And I don't know if this is, you know, right for everybody, but for me what I found is when I finally was able to become abiding and seeing the abundance was when I f started to do to have compassion for myself, have loving kindness for myself. Then there was room to to open it up to to all beings and there's it's amazing how I know it has become a habit and I'm not sure why but there's just something that just my hand just goes right to my heart when I'm when I'm feeling things that are you know or I'll be I'm in this one class and there's a woman that I don't I want to describe something but somewhat on the spectrum whatever that means but I could just feel how difficult it was for her to try in this class to try to explain what she wanted to say and I'm thinking I have that same difficulty too you know there's times where I can't say what I want to say um, I'm not different than others and there was so long of a period of my life where I was like you know I don't belong I don't you know so now I'm not there's no longer this single being anymore I just I feel like I'm part of this wholeness and so but it felt like it started with being okay with who this heart was and then it was able to explain yeah thanks Haya it's beautiful and I think we have to leave it there it's nine o'clock so why don't we just take a few moments of silence together let go of the words Appreciate how wholesome our time together these seven weeks has been. We can allow there to be a natural sadness, perhaps, or whatever that feels like to be ending tonight. Wishing each other well in our practice, in our lives. May we meet again as Dharma friends fellow practitioners on this ancient path, grateful for our lineage of wise women, men, folks before us who did their practice. And now it's our turn to develop wisdom and compassion, to be wise, skillful beings, to share and to contribute. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.